So let me begin with the confession. I have something of a complex. Just what you want to hear from your minister, right? <laughs> a complex about learning a second language. On the one hand, I've carried a great desire throughout much of my life to do so. I love the idea, the prospect of knowing, of being able to speak and read and think in an entirely, to me, new language. I have not done so. And I could blame it on many things. I'm so busy with other work. I have not found the right class. I've heard that an immersion program is the way to go, but I just haven't been able to arrange for this and organize my schedule, blah, blah, blah. There are many reasons. But another reason is fear. It is one thing to learn about something, to start with ignorance and begin that slow journey of education. It is another to engage that journey in public, explicitly in relationship, making mistakes and fumbling for words and saying the wrong thing in the wrong way with the wrong pronunciations in front of many witnesses, right? There is a fear that I will confuse or inadvertently offend someone in my clumsiness, but even more primal is my fear my certainty almost that I will embarrass myself as I struggle to understand and perform what I feel like I should know. And because I have spent a good share of my life grappling with words and have felt a certain sense of accomplishment at times with the ways I can put words together to think of starting from scratch, from a place of complete ignorance To begin again feels, well, scary. It's only words, but words are what we have. Such a fundamental piece of our connection with one another. This is a time in which the power of words to introduce and justify and explain ideas matters. Rebecca Solnit writes, and that power is tangible in the changes at work. And there are changes at work. And I hear many people, many times people from my older white male cisgender heterosexual peer group complaining about those changes. And as silly and self-absorbed and self-protective and, well, cowardly as my own fears are about the vulnerability I imagine experiencing in the process of learning a new language, I have to wonder if that is a piece of what is at play with the changing cultural language of our time. The power of words is tangible in the changes at work. And as the words change, I must learn them. And I might use them incorrectly. And I might inadvertently 
offend someone. And worse, I might embarrass myself. I noticed this at work in the initial and ongoing tide of protests against, quote, political correctness, unquote. Protests which are voiced along the whole spectrum from right to left and from the top of the class system to the bottom because no one wants to be associated with horror of horrors censorship. Can't we all just say what we mean to say? But that is the question, right? What is it we mean to say? And how do we best express it? And do we wish to respect others in the ways in which we express what we mean to say? Now, granted, to follow this line of thought, I would have to allow for the fact that I need to learn, that I don't know it all already, that I need to learn some things about the language I use from your point of view and not rely solely on mine. I may need to learn a new language or certainly a new way to employ the language that I know. But rather than face that vulnerability, many choose to attack the whole project. It is like saying, oh, Spanish is a stupid language anyway. Or complaining that they won't let me speak English in my French class, whatever happened to free speech. Or deciding that rather than taking the risk of inadvertently offending someone with my clumsy use of a new language, I opt rather to purposely offend them with the language I know, which doesn't avoid the offense, but does at least make me feel in control. And that is a part of it, right? For me and my aforementioned peer group especially, we are used to being in control, sometimes without it even being apparent to us certainly without it being straightforwardly acknowledged by us. But when something like the way we use words gets challenged and we are made to feel uncomfortable about our proficiency in a new language of inclusion, we bristle, not against the discomfort, that would be petty after all. No, instead we cry out against the way it restricts our freedom. Yeah, really? Freedom? This outrage has traveled beyond political correctness, which seems rather quaint at this point, to rail against cancel culture and wokeness. Two days ago, proudly wielding his crude and insensitive use of language, Texas Senator Ted Cruz attacked the, quote, woke media, unquote, for turning the U.S. military, quote, into pansies, unquote. I don't really need to say any more about that, I think. You can never be woke enough, podcaster and comedian Joe Rogan said earlier this week. That's the problem. It keeps going. 
it keeps going further and further and further down the line. And if you get to the point where you capitulate, where you agree to all these demands, it'll eventually get to where straight white men are not allowed to talk. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott said in an interview a couple months back that woke supremacy is as bad as white supremacy. We need to take that seriously. Do we? Do we really need to take that seriously? Do we really need to try and believe that attempting to wake people up to the impact of their words and actions has resulted in an equivalent amount of suffering to the legacy of enslavement, lynchings, torture, oppression, discrimination, injustice, brutality, and despair wrought by white supremacy. Do we need to fear that the military will become less effective as they attempt to be more explicitly inclusive? Do I need to fear the day coming when I, with my tenuous societal identity of straight white male, will not be allowed to speak? If the answer to these questions is no, and while I truly try to keep an open mind in most situations, I can barely imagine trying to support a yes to any of those questions. If the answer to these questions is no, then I have to ask why the hysteria? Because this is a time in which the power of words to introduce and justify and explain ideas matters, and that power is tangible in the changes at work. It is tangible, and it is showing up in the words we use and how we use them. And because language is at the heart of how I see myself and how I understand the world and how I relate to other people and also, of course, forms the basis of how I communicate who I am. Because of all that, when language changes and the way we use words is questions, is questioned, there's an understandable fear that arises. It's only words, but words are what we have. And the question is, what do I do with that fear? How do I respond to change? I can choose to retreat. I can choose, I can react. I can respond in anger, but I should at least be honest with myself about where the anger is coming from. Is it truly that I fear not being able to say what I mean? Or is it the discomfort of no longer being able to say whatever I want without suffering any tangible repercussion? Do I want freedom of expression or freedom from accountability? And I know, I know it can feel like it all gets to be a bit much, right? There's always something new to learn. There is one point in which I will agree with Joe Rogan when he said, you can never be woke enough. It keeps going. It keeps going further and further and further down the line. I think that is true. But why is that not a cause for excitement rather than fear? 
for celebration rather than intimidation. Imagine language, which is a beautiful and clumsy tool by any definition and in any of its manifestations. Imagine language becoming more and more inclusive, opening up and out in ways that we cannot now imagine. Words that are specific no longer being treated as universal, which is maybe an unattainable goal after all, and words that shut people out replaced with words that welcome people in. It's not a new phenomenon. This practice of challenging particular words and adapting language to be more inclusive has been going on since, most likely since humans began using words to express ideas. But let me offer an example that has decidedly shifted in my lifetime. Mankind was once used to refer to humanity. All of us. Man was used in place of person, a representative person. An example from theology that one bumps up against often in seminary classes as we read the old works, the relationship between man and God, the works of man, man-made. It goes on and on. Now, if I used the word mankind in a service, I would hope that it would strike a discordant note. Mankind? Does he mean people? Why doesn't he just say people? And it is not enough to say, well, that's what it really means. It is not what it says. If it is meant to mean all of us, it still clearly carries the connotation that men are the ones who matter, and everyone else matters in their relationship to men. And if we applaud that change from mankind to humanity, from man to person, and whatever other ways we have found to correct and expand the words to include who they are meant to include, if we applaud that change, which I surely do, I cannot even read mankind anymore without an inner wince. If we applaud that change, then we should also know that there were people who fought for that change. People who were no doubt called extremists, overly sensitive, enemies to free speech, politically motivated censors. There were people who fought for that change and helped to expand our awareness by changing the words. It's only words, but words are what we have. Words matter partly as a means to help us remember, writes Rebecca Solnit, when the cathedrals you build are invisible, made of perspectives and ideas, you forget you are inside them and that the ideas they consist of were, in fact, made, constructed by people who analyzed and argued and shifted our assumption. They are the fruit of labor. Forgetting means a failure to recognize the power of the process and the fluidity of meanings and values. 
goes on to say, I find now that most people forget the immense work done around race and gender and sexuality and prisons and power, and that it was, in fact, work, intellectual labor to reject the assumptions built into language, the forces that lift some of us up and push others down, to understand and describe the past and the present and propose new possibilities for the future. Yay. Immense work to reject the assumptions built into language, to broaden our vocabulary, to be more inclusive, to challenge our creativity, to move beyond metaphors that exclude or devalue or dismiss. It can be challenging. It can be confusing, frustrating, embarrassing, watching for ableist metaphors, finding alternatives to words that assume gender binary, imagining how what is said may sound to people outside a group of people like me, searching out and researching appropriate terms, asking questions, making mistakes, realizing there are no perfect answers and that individuals within an identified group may offer a wide spectrum of opinion on what is correct, and that, as Joe Rogan said, you can never be woke enough. It keeps going. It keeps going further and further and further down the line. When you are feeling confused and frustrated and embarrassed and tired, take a moment to to be grateful. To be grateful that we live in a time in which the power of words to introduce and justify and explain ideas matters, and that power is tangible in the changes at work. To be grateful to the people who carried out the immense work done around race and gender and sexuality and prisons and power that we take for granted today, and to be inspired by them. To be grateful that we are all, sometimes in spite of ourselves, learning a new language together. One that is based on the belief that our vocabulary has the potential to offer more love, more peace, more justice. And that we can always learn new ways to give voice to our compassion and our connection. It's only words, but words are what we have. And words can open hearts and minds and tell a new story about who we are together.